It's Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the history of the humble shopping carts and why people absolutely did not like them when they first came out. Plus, a parasite that might make you more attractive. But, like, don't try to get it. And a tiny pub in an English village that stood up to Condé Nast and won. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. When new technologies come about, it's natural to act a bit wary at first. You know, sometimes it's not clear how it could be used in a way that's relevant to your life. Maybe you just don't want to change how you've always done things. To shift our perspective, sometimes it's helpful to look back at initial reactions to older technologies, things that we today consider an ordinary part of life. Which is why I loved this piece from last weekend by Nathaniel Meyerson at CNN about how much people hated shopping carts when they first came out. Now, to understand why shopping carts were initially so unpopular, we have to go back before even their predecessor, the shopping basket. So before the 1900s, a typical trip to the grocery store meant telling a clerk over the counter what you wanted, and the clerk would go and gather everything for you and package it all up nicely for you to take home. No browsing aisles or searching for items yourself. With the advent of the telephone, you might even call the store up and someone would deliver your parcels. As Zachary Crockett at Priceonomics pointed out in a piece from 2016, this model wasn't ideal for store owners. Their staff had to be extremely knowledgeable, transactions took a very long time, and there wasn't much opportunity for impulse buying. That began to change in 1916, when Piggly Wiggly opened the first self-service supermarket in Memphis. Here, customers were allowed to browse and pick items they wanted off the shelves on their own. As self-service supermarkets took off steadily across the U.S., a few other changes began happening that, by the 1930s, were seriously affecting how people shopped, particularly how much they bought in one outing. First, there was the introduction of Freon, meaning more and more people had refrigerators in their homes, and then there were preservatives that kept canned foods good for longer. And finally, more people had cars, so rather than having to carry all of your purchases home, you just had to carry them out to the newly paved parking lot. Of course, only about 50% of households had a car in the 30s, and even carrying a basket loaded up with heavy cans and refrigeratable items was proving to be an obstacle few elected to experience. When customers started struggling to carry their heavy basket of groceries, they simply stopped shopping. Grocery store titan Sylvan Goldman would not accept that. Goldman was an early adopter of the self-service supermarket, seeing the potential in it early on and helping bring the concept to Oklahoma, where within a few years he had sold his own stores to a major national retailer and then bought up the smaller chains Humpty Dumpty and Piggly Wiggly. But that was all right before the Great Depression, and savvy businessman as he was, even he was feeling the strain. That's when he set himself the task of cracking this shopping basket problem. Now, his first inclination was to instruct clerks to offer customers second baskets, keeping the first behind the counters for them. But customers rarely took clerks up on the offer. His next idea was to basically turn the grocery stores into assembly lines. He wanted to rearrange all the shelves into an M shape and attach baskets to tracks that ran along in front of the shelves so customers would go along a set path with baskets moving automatically beside them hands-free. As you can probably imagine, this idea was a bit too convoluted. But then he finally hit on it. Baskets on wheels. 
His original idea was inspired by a folding chair in his office. He and his handyman literally just attached wheels to the bottom of a folding chair and then put a grocery basket on top of the seat. Subsequent iterations used two baskets and were made of metal instead of wood, and they also completely folded up for storage. Some versions had removable baskets, but the idea was there. He made a dozen of these and introduced them to one of his Piggly Wiggly stores in 1936, expecting them to be an immediate smash hit. They weren't. Writing to the Smithsonian Institute in the 70s, Goldman says that absolutely no one wanted to use them. Women told them that they were sick of pushing around strollers all day, so they weren't going to do the same thing with a cart in the store. Men thought that using a cart would make them look weak. They wanted to show that they were strong enough to carry a basket loaded up with cans. What Goldman may not have known at the time was that he actually wasn't the first one to come up with the idea for a shopping cart. A handful of people had tried it over the years, but no one else had managed to get people to use them either. According to CNN, one chain in Texas had a version of carts in the early 1900s at one of the first self-service supermarkets. But they were basically received as too low class for the fancy and dignified shoppers to be seen using. Pushing a cart? Isn't that someone else's job to do for me? And even though some people did have cars to load up all their purchases into by the time Goldman was introducing his carts in the late 30s, not everyone did. And as probably anyone who has ever lived somewhere in which they walk, bike, or take public transit to and from the grocery store can tell you, a basket is a pretty good approximation of how much you might be able to carry home with you in a couple of bags. With a large cart, it's harder to estimate when you've passed over the limit of what you can physically carry home. Carts can also make it harder to estimate what you're buying in general. An early 2000 study from a marketing consulting firm found that people buy 40% more when they use a shopping cart. Carts can make customers shop a bit more passively, more impulsively, just sort of glazing their eyes across the shelves, not thinking as much about what they've already selected. But people didn't know all of that in the 1930s, though perhaps some maybe had an inkling about certain parts of it. Whatever their individual reasoning, customers at Goldman's Piggly Wiggly stores just weren't using the carts. So he pulled out all the stops to convince them. He hired actors, men and women, to wander around his stores happily using the carts. When real customers saw who they thought were fellow customers using the carts, they slowly began trying them too. Goldman then took photos of the happy actors to put in newspaper ads about how great shopping with carts were, and created films about how to properly use the carts. Slowly but surely, they started taking off, and Goldman became a multi millionaire. There were small innovations over the years, child seats and later seat belts for the child seats, but the biggest innovation came not from Goldman, but from another inventor by the name of Orla Watson. He created a rear-swinging door so that the carts could be telescopically nested within each other for storage purposes. Goldman wasn't happy to have a competitor, so he invented his own version of this design and then took Watson to court, where eventually it was decided that Goldman could license his design out to folks like Watson. Not exactly a good look for Goldman, but hey, at least we have a better way to store carts now. I mean, can you imagine how much space they would take up otherwise? The shopping cart has now, of course, become a ubiquitous sign of consumerism, popping up in art and turning into the universal icon for online commerce. It's an everyday facet of our society, but like so much else, when it first hit the scene, 
most people didn't want anything to do with it. What new technologies emerging right now that many people aren't so fond of do you think will be the ones that stick and that future generations will be amused that anyone ever didn't see the point of? Toxoplasmosis, an infection caused by the single-celled parasite Toxoplasma gondii. Some say it's the most successful parasite in the world today. It can infect any mammal or bird. People on every continent have been infected over 40 million in the U.S. alone. And once you're infected, it could stay inside you for the rest of your life. Now, the good news is that most people have very few symptoms, if any. Pregnant and immunocompromised people should be cautious, however. If you do experience any symptoms, it may be temporary flu-like symptoms or, in severe cases, various problems with your eyes and vision. Some studies have also linked it to certain neurological disorders. And it might make you super sexy. A study published recently in the journal Peer J found that people infected with the parasite were rated as more attractive and healthier looking than their non-infected counterparts. The study compared 35 people infected with the parasite against 178 people who did not have it. None of them were symptomatic, but they had been tested for the parasite in a previous related study. Quoting Science Alert, Following a number of different tests involving the participants, including surveys, physical measurements, and visual assessments, the researchers found toxoplasma-infected subjects had significantly lower facial fluctuating asymmetry than the non-infected people. Fluctuating asymmetry is a measure of deviation from symmetrical features, with lower levels of asymmetry, i.e. higher symmetry, being linked with better physical health, good genes, and attractiveness, among other things. In addition, women carrying the parasite were found to have lower body mass and lower BMI than non-infected women, and they reported both higher self-perceived attractiveness and a higher number of sexual partners. In a separate experiment, a group of 205 independent volunteers rated photographs of the participants' faces, and the raters found the infected participants looked both significantly more attractive and healthier than the non-infected participants. End quote. The researchers think the parasite could cause those changes to facial symmetry, or perhaps influence metabolic rates, and other studies have shown that infected men have higher levels of testosterone than non-infected men, but the researchers also float the idea that men with higher testosterone levels could be more likely to be infected by the parasite to begin with, or maybe the parasite can alter the host phenotype in very small ways, like manipulating chemicals and hormones in the body. Despite some of the aforementioned potential, though rare, side effects, the researchers say that perhaps some of the effects of the parasite benefit infected people and other animals. So there's like an evolutionary advantage going on. And it's not just infected humans who were rated as more attractive. An older study in rats also showed that infected male rats were preferred as sexual partners. There does seem to be a lot of speculation in the causation versus correlation realm, as well as just a huge dearth of concrete knowledge about toxoplasmosis here. Again, don't go out there and try to get toxoplasmosis by, like, eating undercooked meat or putting your hands in your mouth in between emptying your cat's litter box and washing your hands. But if you happen to already be infected and don't have any other symptoms, maybe some good news here about how well you'll perform on Hinge next time you log on. One of the biggest magazines in the world picked a fight with a tiny little pub in England. 
The Star Inn at Vogue received a cease and desist letter in March from Condé Nast, the owner of Vogue magazine. The letter read in part, quote, We are concerned that the name you're using is going to cause problems because, as far as the general public is concerned, a connection between your business and ours is likely to be inferred. End quote. There's just a few complicating factors here, though. First, the Star Inn at Vogue is not some new flashy club that someone might genuinely think has any connection to Vogue magazine. It's a cozy old village pub that's named the Star Inn at Vogue because it is located in the village of Vogue, a village that has been around for 200 years, and the pub has been around for about 150 of those. So actually, perhaps Vogue magazine should have asked the village for permission to name their magazine Vogue, since the magazine only dates back to the year 1916. Pub owner Mark Graham said at first he thought the cease and desist letter was a prank from a local, but once he realized the veracity of it, he responded in the requested seven-day time period, explaining how long the pub had been around and what it was actually named after, hoping to counter the claims from Condé Nast that, as Cornwall Live put it, quote, it might confuse its fashionista readers who might not be able to differentiate between their favorite glossy magazine full of top models and a proper Cornish boozer in a village which the vast majority of them have never heard of, end quote. Graham also pointed out in his response that perhaps he should counter the claim since his pub was there first, and also added how Madonna never reached out to the village for permission to use their name in her 1990 hit Vogue. While Graham played ball and sent Condé Nast the requested photos of the bar to show that people could not confuse it with a magazine, and also sent along photos of street signs in the area proving the name of the village, he also wrote a bit cheekily that he would give both Condé Nast and Madonna permission to use the uncapitalized version of Vogue without the village's approval. And he ended his letter by firmly stating that he would not change the name of their bar. Condé Nast has since replied saying they should have done further research after the pub popped up through one of their regular monitors of various register databases using the name Vogue. Graham had recently changed the trading status of the pub from a partnership to a limited company, and it therefore appeared in the United Kingdom's company's house registrar for the first time. But in any case, good for Graham and the star in at Vogue for getting all this free publicity. And if anyone asks, I am now going to insist that the magazine is actually named after a little 200-year-old Cornish village. Well, that's going to be it from me for this week. As always, the show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.